As we think about our theme for today of temptation and the battle that Jesus has with his ultimate enemy, our ultimate enemy, Satan, I want to begin by getting us thinking about temptation by watching a short video. Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you two, another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? okay. All right. So I'm gonna leave and then I'll come back, okay? So you can either eat it right now or you can wait. Either way, okay? Okay. How'd you do? Did you do good? You did? Yeah. You wanted to eat it, didn't you? Yeah. So did I tell you to give you another one? Okay, now you can have both. You need him. <laughs> Little girl never had a chance. We all know what it's like to face temptation. And if you're not a Christian here today, if you're exploring Christianity, uh, you might consider temptation as a conflict of our conscience where we know deep inside there's something that we're not supposed to do, and yet we find ourselves drawn towards that. And so our purpose here today, as we unpack the temptation that Jesus faces from Satan, his ultimate enemy, our ultimate enemy, first we're going to examine how that temptation rolls out, what tactics do we see Satan using, and how do we see Jesus defending against that? And then we'll close with a little bit of practical application for us. How do we take what we've learned here, what we see Jesus doing, and apply it to our own spiritual lives? So I'd invite you to open up your Bibles, Luke chapter 4. We're going to look also at Luke chapter 3. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 3. Those of you who like to have your ducks in a row. Starting with the very first tactic Satan uses, exploiting us in a great moment of weakness. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So here we have Jesus. Just before this fast, he's baptized. The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. He hears his Father's voice. This is my beloved Son, God the Father says, with him I am well pleased. So he has this affirmation. And then he goes on a mission trip, or a spiritual retreat. 
40 days in the desert. It was to exercise his self-control. He was spending time in prayer and fasting and studying God's word. He's preparing for his public ministry, which was about to begin. But notice when Satan attacks. At the end of the 40 days, when he's at his physical weak, weakness, when he's at his mental, emotional weakest point of his life after these 40 days of fasting, Satan says to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread, which is a second tactic that we see Satan employing. He's trying to get Jesus to doubt his identity as the Son of the Father. If you are the Son of God, if God really loves you, why would he want you to do this silly thing like fast for 40 days? Just take that stone over there and turn it into bread, which wouldn't be a big deal for Jesus. Just two years from this point in time, if you remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus has no problem whipping up some bread. So why is this a temptation for him? Why is it a sin? In order to understand that, let's go back to the very beginning, the very first moment when sin entered into this world, Genesis chapter 3, where we find Adam and Eve, they're hanging out in paradise. These are the first two created human beings. They have everything their hearts could possibly desire. They have the love of their father. They have an all-you-can-eat buffet in the garden. There's no sin. There's no shame. There's no guilt. It's all just a wonderful paradise. And then Satan attacks. The text tells us that he approaches first Eve and says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So there is a boundary in paradise that God says, all of this is yours, but you can't have this. In his wisdom, in his divine knowledge, we don't know why God did that, but this is God's creation. He has the right. He's put a boundary in place for Adam and Eve. And the temptation continues. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. In other words, God's not going to harm you. He, he loves you. God wouldn't lay a finger on you, his beloved. God knows, though, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, the temptation for Adam and Eve in this moment is to shed their human nature and to take on a portion or a nature of the divine. And here we see another tactic of Satan. Satan always overpromises, and he underdelivers. Think about some of the temptations you've faced. I guarantee you that Satan overpromised, and then if you succumb to that temptation, he underdelivered, and you know that by your conscience, the way you feel, the, the guilt and the shame, or maybe even the consequences that you experience in this world. Consequences for Adam and Eve were pretty severe. They not only did not become co-equal with God, they lost paradise. They were forced out of the garden. They had to work with their hands. They experienced guilt and shame, the emotional consequences of falling into sin because Satan always overpromises and he underdelivers. And now let's go back to Jesus. If you flip back with me to Luke chapter 3, I mentioned the baptism. Look at verse 21. A bunch of people are getting baptized. Jesus includes himself in that. He is baptized. As he's praying, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. This is God the Father speaking. 
You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. You hear the affirmation? This is how God sees his uh, heavenly child. This is how God sees you with great affirmation, with great love. This is a picture of the relationship that we have with the Father, his love for us. But then Luke does something interesting here. He, instead of going straight to the temptation of Jesus, that's what exactly happened. Uh, Jesus is baptized. He goes straight to the wilderness. Luke takes a pause, though, and he gives us a genealogy. Verse 23, he begins with Joseph, Jesus' stepdad for all intensive purposes, but of the line of David. And then he lists the connection from Jesus uh, all the way through some of the heroes of our faith, uh, David, Solomon. And then if you look at verse 38, he ends with the sons of Enos, the son of Seth, and the son of Adam. He connects Jesus to Adam, Adam the one who brought sin into this world by eating, Adam who we call the first Adam, Jesus we call the second Adam, Satan was going to try to employ the same exact tactic on Jesus, God, the Heavenly Father's beloved Son. If I can get Jesus to sin in this way, to fill his belly, to ignore the boundary that the Father has placed on the Son, then I can get the second Adam, Jesus, to sin as well. So the first temptation is all about filling our appetites. Jesus, unlike Adam, succumb, or does not succumb to this temptation. The text tells us that he instead quotes scripture back at Satan. Look at verse 4. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And here we see a neck, another tactic of Satan. Notice how there's no delay. Satan goes right for the throat again. He doesn't take a breath. He moves quickly. And Satan says in verse 5, or actually takes Jesus up and showed him, all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. So Jesus is seeing every powerful kingdom in the world. He's seeing all their wealth. He's seeing all the power. He's seeing all the authority that the kings of the land of the world have. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority, all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you will then bow down and worship me, all of this will be yours. Now what Satan is doing is trying to uh, attack Jesus' human nature. So remember, Jesus, 100% God, Scripture tells us, and yet he put aside that divine nature, and he is also 100% human being. And what human being, at its core, does not want more money and more power and more authority. He's appealing to perhaps Jesus' political nature, and he says this, if you will just bow down and worship me, then I'm going to give you all your heart's desire. After all, Jesus would get all those things, by the way. After he suffered and died, Jesus would get the entire world. But he had to go through the path of suffering first, and Satan says, just bow down and worship me. Now, what Satan is doing is really what every single religion promises, except for Christianity. Every other religion says, if you worship me, then you will get my love. If you worship me, then you will get my things. If you worship me, then you will get my acceptance. That's not Christianity. Instead, true worship, divine worship, is actually a response to what God has already given us, the things that we need to survive in this world. But most importantly, the grace and the salvation and the love and the acceptance and the forgiveness, God has already given that. When we are here worshiping today, we are simply saying thanks 
We're blessing God for what he's given us. We're worshiping him for who he is, the relationship that we have for him that's made possible by Jesus. That is true worship. But Satan's twisting it. He's trying to get Jesus to avoid the hard part of his nature as Messiah, to take a life of comfort. Take the kingdom of the world now. Take the authority now. Don't suffer, Jesus. It could be yours today. Just bow down and worship me. That's the second temptation. And Jesus responds, quoting Deuteronomy. He says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve, because the way to the path of Messiahship for Jesus was one of suffering. Paul, the apostle, explains it like this. He says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This was the heartbeat of the Messiah Jesus, to serve, to give himself for mankind. And then Satan shifts. Now he becomes even more devious. He's going to fight fire with fire, so to speak. He decides to quote Scripture back at Jesus. Jesus has only responded with Scripture up to this point. And so Satan says, okay, let's, let's take a play out of your book here. And he says in verse 9, takes him up to Jerusalem, sits him high on the pinnacle of the temple so he can see all of the temple court. He can see all of Jerusalem. He can see Calvary. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now this is a pretty clever tactic by Satan, because this is known as the soldier's psalm. It's Psalm 9111, Psalm 9112 is the second verse. And every Israelite soldier would know this psalm. They quoted it before going into battle. They would have it memorized. They sang it. It was something that they would use to pump themselves up, to remind themselves that they go before a holy God, and that holy God sends his angels to protect them because they are fighting for the Lord. It was a, it was a military battle type of psalm. And here's Jesus on top of the temple. And Satan knows at this point, Jesus' sole directive is to get to Calvary, is to get to the cross. He was going to battle Satan, his ultimate enemy, for the next three years, marching resolutely into battle to the cross, biggest battle of his life against his greatest enemy. And Satan knows that if he can stop Jesus from doing this, then all of this is for naught. Then, then the whole thing is over, and he would lose this battle. So he quotes this psalm. He says, Jesus... Didn't God say that he's going to command his angels concerning you to guard you? So throw yourself down off the temple. I mean, what good father would send their son into battle knowing he was going to die? What good father would not go to battle with their son, arm shoulder to shoulder to fight the battle together? A good father does that. Why would your father do that, Jesus, if you are the son of God? Instead, you can show yourself prove yourself to people that you're the son of God. Just throw yourself down. His angels are going to come. They're going to sweep you up, just like this psalm says. You're going to get the glory now. You're going to get the authority now. You're going to get the kingdom now. You can avoid the suffering, Jesus. Except this is not what Psalm 9111 says exactly. He cleverly leaves off four important words. Psalm 9111 actually goes like this. 
for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. In Jesus' way, the only path, the only road for Jesus was a road that actually would be void of the Father's protection. It was a path, it was a way in which actually the Father's wrath and judgment was going to be poured out on him. The sins of the world poured out on him on the cross. A horrible, painful suffering and death. That was the Messiah's way. That was his path. And Jesus knows that he has to take it. Because if he doesn't, then there is no salvation. There is no way for us as human beings to earn God's love and acceptance in a place in heaven. This is what the Messiah looks like. He suffers and he dies. And so Jesus again responds using scripture. Now that's the three temptations. Those are the tactics of Satan. And one last thing as we turn the corner here, notice the immediacy of all these temptations. Satan says, Jesus, fill your belly now. Don't wait. Fill your belly now. He says, take authority now. There's no reason to go through the path of suffering. You can have it now. I can give you every single kingdom of the world. Why wait? Don't delay. Throw yourself off the temple. Reveal that you are the true son of God now and get all the glory due your name. Do you see the immediacy? That's how Satan works at our own hearts. He points to things that are out of reach, just slightly, And he says, you can have that now, why wait? Why go through the path of suffering? Why be patient? This is a great tactic of Satan. The question for us today is how do we fight that? We see Jesus fighting it. How do we practically live out our lives as Christians? And if you're a new Christian, if you've been a Christian your entire life, you probably have heard many sermons of this. You've read books, and so I'm not doing anything new or novel here. But I want to leave you with three points, three ways that we can fight Satan that we see in Scripture. And the first one is that we need to examine ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. And some point this week, I would encourage you, take some time and see if you notice a pattern in the temptations that you receive from Satan and the temptations that you might succumb to. Is it after a couple of drinks? Is it when you're by yourself with your computer or your phone or device? Is it when you're hanging out with a certain group of friends that you don't seem to have as, enough, uh, as much self-control with? Is it hanging out on social media and after you're spending time on social media, you feel a certain way or you uh, feel like you're lacking something? Develop, or you will see a developed pattern. I'm, I'm pretty sure if you take the time to look, can almost guarantee it, there's a point in time where Satan likes to attack you at your weakest. That's a weak point. Weak point. If you think militarily, this makes sense. Every general, every army battalion knows where the weak point of their line is. And they know that uh, if that line breaks, then the whole battle's done. So they send reinforcements to that weak spot. They put their big guns on that weak spot. They put air support on the weak spot because their enemy also knows where they are weakest and the enemy's going to come and attack. This is Satan. It's why the apostle Peter likens Satan to a roaring lion. I didn't know a lot about lions before uh, doing some research for this sermon. Uh, Let me impart some knowledge on you if you can uh, let me do that. Lions don't hunt out in the open. You would think as big and powerful and as fast as a lion is, 50 miles per hour a lion can get to, you would think they'd just be out there, you know, strutting their stuff. Look, I'm a lion. Come at me, bro. They don't do that. Lions hide in tall grasses. They hide in bushes. They hide on top of trees. They can climb a tree and hide, and they wait for their prey to come to them. They're patient lions are that's the first point second 
Lions attack the weakest of the flock. Lions don't attack the head of the herd. Lions don't attack rhinoceroses. Lions attack the weakest, most fragile animal in the pack, and they look for the weak ones, and then they pounce. And then lastly, a character trait of a lion is that they devour their prey. A lion is not a polite eater. A lion is not going up and saying, oh, would you please pass me a fork and die if I take a little nibble of the... I don't know why my lions are British. I don't know. I just do that. <laughs> oh, children, now at you with your mouth closed. A lion devours. A lion leaves only a carcass of bones and skin. And that's how Satan is, our great enemy. This is why we know people who have fallen from their life of faith. They have walked away. They've turned their back on the grace that God has given them because Satan devours. He doesn't stop until his task is done. That is our great enemy. Peter says, watch out for him. Be sober-minded. He is waiting to pounce. So how do we fight a formidable enemy like that? Well, number two, taking a playbook from Jesus, I would suggest that we memorize Scripture. It's very interesting to me. Notice how in this conversation, Jesus doesn't actually speak to Satan. They don't have a conversation like in the book of Job when God is talking to Satan up in heaven. If you've read the book of Job, the only thing Jesus does here is quote back to Satan the word of God and specifically the book of Deuteronomy. And I don't know your background. Maybe you came from a denomination that has a lower view of Scripture or you yourself, you're wondering, can I really trust what the Old Testament says or can I trust what the New Testament says? I mean, wasn't that just for that culture at that period of time? Look, if Jesus has this high a view of Scripture, Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the world, shouldn't we also have this high a view of Scripture? Where the writer of Hebrews says it's powerful enough, it's like a sword that can penetrate bones and joints and marrow. And the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we should pick up the sword of the Spirit to fight against the enemy. If Jesus has a high view of Scripture, so can we. The only thing he does is quote Scripture back to Satan. He gives him no other time of day except God's own word. And so what I would suggest is as you think about your point of weakness after you examine yourself, apply God's word to that weakness. Fortify your lines. If it's on your phone. Put a screenshot of a verse on your wallpaper. You know, we open up our phones something like 90 times a day on average. Some of you are probably a lot higher. Some might be a little bit lower. What if every time you popped open your phone, you didn't see what tempts you? You saw a Bible verse of God speaking to that specific temptation. Put it on a sticky note. Put it on your mirror. Put it on your computer. Fortify yourself with God's word. Let him speak to Satan for you because you have everything you need in God's word to fight your great enemy. And then finally, and I would argue the most important tactic we can employ is this, to receive the embrace of your father. This is a picture of our daughter Madison, who is now in eighth grade. This is her as a four-year-old. I can hardly even remember a time when she was small enough to sit in my lap and receive my embrace. But I love this picture because, biblically speaking, this is a perfect example a fantastic analogy of the relationship that your heavenly father wants with you and has with you. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 8.15, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship 
And by him we cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba means Daddy. Paul's not talking to children here. He's talking to adult, mature Christians. This is the relationship that he wants to have with us, and it's the relationship that he actually won for us by the death and his resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. This is why the gospel and Jesus is so important. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, all the guilt and the shame and the sin and the punishment that should have been on us fell on Jesus. So that the second we fall into temptation, we cry out to our daddy, our Abba, and we say, Dad, I'm so sorry. You know, the father responds, Oh, my dear son. Oh, my precious daughter, I forgive you and I love you. You see, his response is tender, like a good dad. And look, we didn't all grow up with dads who represented the Father in heaven well. Nobody is perfect. And maybe you even experienced something like abuse as you were younger. And this is hard to imagine God being so tender and compassionate. But get this, even in his rebuke, he's loving. And God rebukes us. God disciplines us. It says that in Scripture. But even in his, in his rebuke, he says, Oh, my dear son, don't do that. My precious daughter, oh, those are not my ways. Don't go that way, my daughter. Here, let me show you the way that you should go. This is a better way, my, my precious daughter. But far too often, do you do this? I, I hear a different voice. Far too often when I make a mistake, when I succumb to temptation and I sin and I do something that I said I was never going to do again, I hear the voice of condemnation. How dare you? How could you do that again? What is wrong with you? How many times do I have to tell you? That's not the voice of your heavenly father. That's the voice of your enemy who twists scripture, who twists relationship into religion and wants us to not hear the voice of a tender father, but wants us to think that we are condemned and damned forever. That's not the voice of your heavenly father if you hear those voice, voices in rebuke. It's the voice of your great enemy. Instead, we have one who went before us. We have the greater Adam, the one who lived a perfect life in this world and went to the cross on our behalf and died, and again, all that guilt, all that shame, he bore so that we can approach the altar here in a few minutes and receive the very body and blood of Jesus Christ as a solid reminder that us and God, you and God, we're good because he loves us eternally. Amen.